0: weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is January 25th, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. In his new book, The Mind of the Market, Compassionate Apes, Competitive Humans, and Other Tales from Evolutionary Economics, author Michael Shermer draws on the new field of neuroeconomics, and brings together astonishing findings from psychology, biology, and other sciences to describe how our tribal ancestry makes us suckers for brands, why researchers believe cooperation unleashes biochemicals similar to those released during sex, why free trade promises to build alliances between nations, and how even capuchin monkeys get indignant if they don't get fair reward for their work. Shermer is the author of nine previous books, including the best-selling Why People Believe Weird Things. He is a columnist for Scientific American, the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and the founder and director of the International Skeptic Society. He gave this lecture last month as part of the Science End of the City Author Series at the New York Academy of Sciences.
1: Thanks to the New York Academy of Science and the New York Skeptics. Uh, during the um, reception afterwards, be sure and say hi to my friend Jamie and Swiss standing right there. Jamie, say hi to the crowd. Jamie's the founder of the new New York Skeptics uh, group. One of the founders is a, there's a four four founders, the co-founders. So anyway, so say hi to them afterwards, and uh, they'll be putting on events like this and. So be sure and hook up with that group. Anyway, I am the, uh, the publisher of this skeptic magazine, since I don't have the PowerPoints. Okay, I brought copies, uh, which is the quarterly publication of the Society We Investigate Claims of the Paranormal, Pseudoscience, Fringe Groups, and Cults and Claims of All Kinds Between Science and Non-Science, Junk Science, Pathological Science, Bad Science, Voodoo Science, Non-Science, and Plain old Nonsense, and unless you been abducted by aliens and on Mars for the last 20 years, you know there's a lot of it out there. Nonsense, that is. and uh, So that's sort of our specialty. For example, we did one on uh, the current issue in the newsstands now is on medical controversies. For example, do uh, vaccinations cause autism? That's been a subject in all the news. There appears to be no medical link at all. Uh, that is, when you do these big epidemiological studies, you find no no connection there, and there's no causal vector between what's in the vaccinations and whatever it is that causes autism, which we're not quite sure. But nevertheless, the anecdotal thinking, which we're designed by evolution to, to pay the most attention to, that is A, connected to B, and often A is connected to B, and that's called learning, but sometimes it, it isn't. It's a false positive, and we have no... Brain module that's a baloney detection kit in there. So we have science that does that, but but science is counterintuitive. We we didn't evolve uh, the capacity to to grasp intuitively this idea of controlled experiments and a control group and experimental group and and that causation is not uh, correlation is not causation and so on. So we deal with that uh, those kinds of issues in trying to understand why people believe those sorts of things even if they they aren't true. Um, so you can subscribe there on, at skeptic.com, or uh, you can just fill out a, an email address on one of these clipboards, which I'll pass around, and uh, if you print clearly there, that'll give you the free um, electronic version of Skeptic Magazine that goes out every week. And uh, and we have a podcast and all the, the cool Internet stuff everybody's doing these days. Uh, so um, So... Um, Oh, I should should note parenthetically, we also did a, uh, our previous issue was on 9-11 conspiracy theories. Uh, Since we're in World Trade Center Building 7, which uh, comes up often in the 9-11 truth movement, (coughs) um, the name alone tells you a lot. Like uh, like it wasn't a conspiracy. Well, it was a conspiracy, right? I mean, Al-Qaeda, 19 guys, that's a conspiracy by definition. But the 9-11 truthers believe it was a different group of people headed by George Bush and and and, uh, and Cheney and company. These people, by the way, believe that George Bush is the most incompetent president to ever inhabit the White House, who also somehow managed to pull off the most elaborate, intelligent (laughs) conspiracy in all of history, uh, in which not one of the operatives, the thousands of people planting bombs in this former building here, for example, uh, never got caught. Not one of them wants to go on Larry King Live to tell the story of what he saw uh, Nevertheless, we see all the pundits uh, going on talk shows after they quit the administration. They write books about the you know, secret inside stuff that they saw. Not one person has done this uh, who was involved in this so-called conspiracy. So then it becomes more interesting uh, of why people would believe anything like that. And that's, so that's how we get into those sorts of things. So my, most of my books are spinoffs from our investigations into um, these different kinds of claims since we started in 1992. So. Um, uh, why People Believe weird Things. My first book was on science and pseudoscience, and then How We Believe was on science and religion, and then Science of Good and Evil was on science and morality. And so this was the natural extension, science and whatever the next thing is. So this is, The Mind of the Market is the, I guess, uh, volume four of my trilogy, uh, based Douglas Adams. and. Uh, um, so really, it's just, taking, um, it's just taking the same principles of skepticism and science. Science is skepticism and vice versa. Scientists are skeptics by nature. It's, it's what we do. Um, it isn't uh, you know a cynicism or naysaying. It's just asking what the evidence is for the claims and trying to come up with natural explanations for different phenomena. So I thought what I'd do tonight is just, well, uh, this is a reading, right? So i supposed to read <laughs> a little bit anyway. So I thought I'd do, do, uh, just read a few excerpts here and there and then um and then talk a little bit about in between and then we can do some questions and then go out and and have adult beverages and solve the world's problems which is the best way to do it. uh and and if you're in and if you're too anxious for that apparently you could just tell them you're with Johnson and Johnson and you can get some great <laughs> free food and ask them if they have any performance enhancing drugs there. Um, so I'm fine with telling my atheist friends the second word in my book is Jesus. <laughs> so uh, and th- this is an example of the, uh, an example of the mind of the market. In Jesus's parable of the talents, recounted in Matthew 25, the gospel author recalls the Messiah as saying, in the final verse, "For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away." Well, this turns out to be a conservative's favorite quote out of the Gospels because it says, see, Jesus was a conservative. <laughs> of course, they overlook all the other passages as they want to do. And, and as I continue here, um, out, of this con- out of context, this hardly sounds like the wisdom of the prophet who proclaimed that the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, but in context, Jesus' point was that properly investing one's money is measured in talents. This is, uh, the, gospel, this is the parable of the talents and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it generates even more wealth. The servant who was given five talents invested it and gave his master ten talents in return. The servant who was given two talents invested it and gave his master four talents. But the servant who was given one talent buried it in the ground and gave his master back just the one talent. The master then ordered his risk-averse servant to give the one talent to the servant who had doubled his investment of five, and so he who earned the most was rewarded with even more, and thus it is that the rich get richer." Anyway, Jesus probably had something else in mind other than investments of, uh, of investment tools for your money. Uh, but in the 1960s, the sociologist Robert K. Merton um, coined what he called the Matthew effect, based on that that passage, in which he did a study of um, scientific papers and who gets the most credit for the, the most well-known papers. And what he discovered was that um, if you if you think of the, the, the marketplace of science as a kind of an economy, as it were, um, he, he noticed that um, uh, the most eminent scientists typically receive the most credit, uh, that more credit than they deserve, um, simply by dint of having a big name. While their junior colleagues who did all the work, <laughs> graduate students usually, um, uh, go largely unnoticed. And so the more well-known you become, As a scientist, the more things uh, elevate up to giving you credit, even though perhaps you didn't quite deserve that. And, and of course, we know this is true uh, with both innovative ideas and quotes. Quotes typically gravitate up to the most famous person who ever said it or was even loosely associated with it. So Yogi Berra even had to write a book called Half the Things I Said I Never Said um, for that. And in our little world, probably the most famous uh, quip and skepticism is uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and this is always prefaced with as Carl Sagan said, well he did say it in Cosmos but he got it from a relatively obscure sociologist of science named Marcello Truzzi who wrote it in a technical paper and nobody ever noticed it but Carl picked it up and said it without giving him credit I mean it's a, just a TV show you, don't, you can't really do all that stuff and so forevermore it is as Carl Sagan said and, and, and so it goes Well, marketers call the Matthew effect cumulative advantage. That is, in a broader economic context, it's what I call the bestseller effect. Um, Once a product gets a head start in sales, it signals to consumers that other people want that product, and therefore it must be good, thereby causing them to desire it as well, which leads even more people to purchase the product, sending more signals to other consumers so that they too must have it, Uh, And so it climbs up the bestseller list. So this is why authors do, well, you know, what I'm doing here. And you run around at bookstores and sign stock, and they put it out there on the front with the little sticker on it, and you do radio shows, and all All that's just part of what all markets and industries do, to try to give your product a little boost, a little head start, to give it a cumulative advantage, to give you the Matthew effects that the rich get richer. Uh, I just wrote an op-ed piece today about, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama and his, you know, getting a little boost with the uh, Iowa Caucuses and that sort of all of a sudden he's on the front page of every newspaper in America the next day and that gives him a little bit of a head start and then Hillary makes a comeback and then she gets more press and you get this sort of runaway effect such that by the time it gets to my state, California, the whole race is over and so I sort of feel like, what's the point? I mean, this is not exactly democracy. Well, anyway, that's another subject. Um, but, but that's what happens when you, if you treat it as a market and, and see those kind of cumulative effects. Anyway, this has been experimentally tested. We all know about uh, ratings, say, on Amazon.com, you can rate the, the quality of a book. Or like on iTunes and, and other places, you can, you can look at the download rate of songs and so on. So a uh, Columbia University sociologist tested the Matthew effect by putting a bunch of uh, no-name bands with no-name songs that you would have never heard of on the internet. And the internet is a great place to do research. You can get huge sample sizes of not hundreds, but tens of thousands. So they basically allowed one group of subjects, one group of people who logged on to download songs, uh, any songs that they wanted. So these would be songs they would never heard by people they would never heard of and so on, sort of garage band kind of things with their little Apple you know, music programs and so on. Um, and, uh, and so one group g- saw the download rate, which was rigged to show some of them going higher and others not. And then another group, there was no download rate, and predictably so, the... The, one, the songs with the most download rates got even more downloaded rates, and then that, that just took over and you got a Matthew effect there. So that's an example of the, 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 the market having a mind of its own. It's one double entendre of the title, the mind of the market. The market has a mind of its own, and, of course, the mind operates within the market. So we'll talk about both of those. A larger example, so starting with Chapter 1, The Great Leap Forward, uh, of what I mean by the mind of the market, or having, having it, its own mind, sort of operating along as a complex system. I start off with um, with the problem I'm trying to solve in the book, that is living along the Orinoco River that borders Brazil and Venezuela are the Yanomamo people. Hunter gatherers whose average annual income has been estimated at the equivalent of about $100 per person per year. If you walked into a Yanomamo village and counted up all the stone tools, baskets, arrow points, arrow shafts, bows, cotton yarn, cotton and vine hammocks, clay pots, assorted other tools, various medicinal remedies, pets, food products, articles of clothing and the like, you'd end up with a figure of about 300. Before 10,000 years ago, this was the approximate material wealth of every village on the planet. So if our species is about 100,000 years old, I'm taking the low end of the last out of Africa migration, the last bottleneck, so roughly 100,000 years old. The 90% of our history has been spent in this state of relative economic simplicity. Living along the Hudson River that borders New York and New Jersey are the Manhattan people. (laughs) (laughs) They're right out there. Whose average annual consumer traders, whose average annual income has been estimated at $40,000 per person per year. If you walk into a Manhattan village and count up all the different products available at retail stores and restaurants, factory outlets and superstores, you'd end up with a figure of around 10 billion. 10 billion. That's the the, um, the SKU, as marketers call it, the stock keeping units, the barcode, the the, U, the, 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 so the 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 last one they made had 10 billion possible numbers, and that got used up. So now they've just bumped it up to 100 billion, and then they'll have to go to a trillion after that. Um, So this difference of 400 times in income and 33 million times in products, almost beggars description. If ever there was a great leap forward, this was it. Comparable to the evolution of bipedalism, the big brain and consciousness equivalent to the invention of fire, the printing press, and the internet and on par with the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and the digital revolution. And the great leap forward did not happen gradually. It's been estimated that the $100 per person per year income uh, rose only to about $150 per person per year by the year 1000. That is the end of the Bronze Age in the time of King David. It didn't exceed $200 per person per year uh, until after 1750 and the rise of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, it took 97,000 years to go from 100 to $150 per person per year. Then another 2,750 years to climb to $200 per person per year. And finally, 250 years to ascend to today's level of $6,600 per person per year for the entire world. And as we just saw, an order of magnitude higher still uh, for the wealthiest people in the richest nations. If we compress that 100,000-year period into just one year, then the last 250-year period of relative prosperity would represent less than one day out of the year. Or if we condense the 100 millennium into a 24-hour day, our epoch of industrial production and market economies accounts for a mere 3.6 minutes. In other words, the age in which we live and take for granted is normal and the way things have always been in fact constitutes a mere one quarter of one percent of the history of humanity. So there's nothing normal about the way we live and so the central premise of evolutionary psychology which is what what evolutionary economists are doing in applying the theory to economies is that our evolutionary past has to have had some huge influence on the way we are today. How could it not if 99% of our history has been spent in this other way of life? um, It at least behooves us to know something about what that life was like. And so that's really, and that's a fairly new thing. Um, It wasn't really until the 1990s that it became acceptable to apply evolutionary theory to human behavior. Uh, Ed Wilson tried to do it in the early 70s, but Gould and Hernstein and others, um, basically uh, Lewontin, basically killed it uh, through a, a culture of wars. But they, those guys, uh, Wilson won in the long run. It just mutated from sociobiology to evolutionary psychology. And now we have evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary economics, which is what I'm writing about, and other, other forms. So that, that's what we're doing here. And to try to look at the economy as a complex adaptive system, that is, it's, it's a simple system that arises from the bottom up, Um, much like so many other complex systems we're already familiar with. So one way of getting people comfortable with both evolution and economics is to describe something that they're already familiar with. So to my conservative friends who are uncomfortable with evolution, I say, well, just think of the economy. Oh, yeah, it's a bottom-up thing that doesn't need much top-down design. Oh, yeah, I get that. Or to my liberal friends who are skeptical of free market economics, I say, just think of it like evolution. It's like, oh, yeah, no top-down designer. Oh, I got it. So one thing I'm trying to do is sort of bridge the conservative liberal thing, you know, and say it's okay for conservatives to believe in Darwin and and okay for liberals to at least accept parts of free market economics. Anyway, so um, these these forms of complex adaptive systems, life itself appears to be sort of an aggregate of molecules that just, all you do is just put energy into the system and they begin to come together in sort of prebiotic soup, whichever theory turns out to be the right one of how that came about. Certainly, as we know, we're pretty confident. There wasn't an intelligent designer from Andromeda that did it, or wherever it is supposed to have come from. Uh, It just happens naturally here. Complex life itself appears to be a self-organized emergent property of simpler systems. Say, take uh, Lynn Margulis' theory of, of, um, uh, of, of how simple cells, prokaryote cells, and glommed into these more complex eukaryote cells that we're made out of, which goes a long ways of explaining something that should have been obvious once you say it. Mitochondrial DNA. Why did the mitochondria in our cells have their own set of DNA? It's just weird until you you think, well, oh, I see. Mitochondria used to be independent organisms, prokaryote type cells by themselves. And then through this kind of emergent property of simpler systems growing more complex, these prokaryote cells, Sort of glommed into these larger um, complexes. This is her theory. I think she's largely right, and is pretty much accepted by most biologists today. That's an example of a simpler system growing without uh, the design from uh, from on high. The immune system, consciousness is probably best going to be explained as an emergent property of these simpler uh, patterns of neural sequences. Language, of course, <laughs> is a is a self. A sort of self-designed bottom-up system. Nobody uh, 500 years ago set out for English to be spoken in a certain way, say in Southern California, where they say like every three words. Um, that just sort of happens. It evolves naturally from the bottom up. Uh, the law is like that, and, and of course the economy. So that's how I'm treating the the economy as a as a sort of a bottom-up system. And that was um, that was a- Adam Smith's central one. Of C- Adam Smith's central point in the Wealth of Nations is that um, Uh, In the the metaphor, the invisible hand, it looks like it's designed uh, by somebody who's pulling the strings. But in fact, it's an invisible hand, which is one of the wonderful metaphors, like natural selection. It's just a metaphor. There's nobody selecting anything. Uh, And the metaphor is so powerful. And because we're designed, I shouldn't use that word, but we're designed by evolution. Maybe that's a way to say it. Uh, to think of things as design because that's what we do. We design things so we think when we see a complex system, it must have been designed. But Smith and Darwin's point was that no, the metaphor is just a metaphor. Uh, No one's selecting anything, organisms are not becoming anything. Polar bears aren't becoming marine mammals. They're not becoming anything, they may become extinct. Uh, uh, They're just well adapted, or at least they were before global warming, for doing exactly what they're doing, they're not going anywhere. Um, and so th- there's nobody selecting. And the same thing in in um, in economies. So in my second chapter called Folk Economics, I addressed the problem of why people have a hard time accepting uh, free market economics and evolution for this, really the same reason. And I use uh, Richard Dawkins' nice uh, metaphor he calls uh, a middle world, although I prefer middle land for literative purposes, that as we evolved in the sort of plains of Africa, in this uh, this sort of middle world of speed and age and movement that... Uh, and size. Most objects we see are, you know, sort of middling size between, say, ants and mountains. So we're not used to seeing, you know, gigantic, huge objects that we can conceive of, like galaxies and expanding bubble universes and and things like that. Or much smaller things like molecules and atoms. It takes much inference, and it's counterintuitive. That's why quantum mechanics is so counterintuitive. There's no three-dimensional model that works nicely in our middle wor- in our middling world that our brains are. Uh, evolve to to live in. And same thing with time. You know, we live a scant few decades. We see things happening in a matter of seconds or minutes. Uh, A psychological now is only three seconds long. And so the idea of, you know, tens of thousands of years of change is uh, counterintuitive. So people don't grasp evolution over millions of years or global warming over thousands of years. I mean, Global warming. It was cold the other day. I mean, what are you talking about? That's a that's a classic sort of argument. You hear this all the time. It's an anecdotal way of thinking. It's it's completely unscientific. But that is the natural way to think of that, that particular anecdote. And uh, it, it, and in this middling world, this this middle land, um, it, it, there there was no really concept of the way people lived of um, of uh, free markets of. Well, there was no free markets. There was no markets at all. There were no excessive products. There was no uh, accumulation of wealth. And so there was no invisible hand to even have any experience with. Most, almost all hunter-gatherer communities are egalitarian communities. Almost all wealth is redistributed in a fairly equal way. When it isn't, it usually causes considerable angst because somebody who is accumulating it is usually getting it for Let's say say we say best described as gains ill gotten uh and that's that has been the case throughout evolutionary history and through most of history of civilization so of course, people are skeptical of of this sort of thing. it leads that sort of that natural knee jerk response to people like Bill Gates. remember that New Yorker cartoon where the one guy says to the other one at the party, uh, "I hated Bill Gates before it was so fashionable <laughs> and um and so um it, it, and so it, it requires, like science, it requires some kind of extra counterintuitive effort to, to grasp, and that's why books like *The Origin of Species* and *The Wealth of Nations* are, are such classics because it, it took a long time to figure that out. Um, okay. So, um, so then moving on to Adam and Smith, and looking at a little bit more of the um, the, the the mind of the market—that is, the mind in the market and how that that happens. Um, one of the things to point out about Adam Smith is that before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he was a professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University where he wrote his first book, which almost nobody knows about, which is called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. And Smith was anything but pro-business and pro-free markets and so on like he's often associated with. In fact, he was very skeptical of business people getting together to manipulate the social and political system to their own Unfair gains over other businesses and, and and particularly over other countries because of the mercantilist win lose uh, model and so um, uh, and so most people don't know that but what he wrote in the uh, theory of moral sentiments is that uh, this be long before Darwin so he didn't know what the mechanism of it would be but that people have a natural propensity not just for selfishness but also for kindness and cooperation and for altruism and especially for empathy that he says we have a deep sense of empathy we can feel somebody else's pain and this is the basis of a civil society so no you don't you can't have just a complete free market you have to have some kind of social system in which it sits that regulates and controls think of it as a game in which you have rules that have to be obeyed within that you can allow things to, to go very freely and a nation can accumulate a lot more wealth if you just let people do whatever they want uh, within this, the set of boundaries of rules so um, so then that gets me into um, into my next uh, chapter on um, on the evolution of the moral sediments because now we know something about how that happened and then how that ties in with well here's the problem we have to solve from an evolutionary perspective why should why should people be nice to one another? Why be cooperative and altruistic and fair and honest in dealing with other people well, if they're your relations. Um, you know a selfish gene model works nicely for explaining why, if I save my brother or sacrifice my for myself for my brother or help him, at least some of my genes are getting into the next generation so if you think of the expanding circle of sentiments in peter singer 's nice metaphor, th- those that are closest related to us genetically, yes, okay, so a kin selection is a, is a nice way of explaining altruistic behavior. But what about people we don't, uh, that we're not related to? Well, there you can expand the circle out a little bit more. These are people we mostly know. So in these small hunter-gatherer communities, everybody either is related to one another or they know one another. And so then you, you keep track of social relations and and reciprocity. So reciprocal altruism where I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine works as long as we have a long history with each other we know who we can count on and who we can't and who's the cooperators and who's the defectors and who cheats and lies and who's honest and so on. And that's what gossip is for. Gossip is a way of keeping track of people. Believe it or not, there's people that Academics who get paid to study gossip—they go through the gossip columns and they see what people gossip about—and it is, you know, sex and power and who knows who and who's connected to who—and you know, it's all—it's all social and human and social relationships. Uh, Well, studied in a different way, that's these are these are signals sent, signals of information sent to other people about who you can trust and who you can't. Um, But why would you trust or be nice to or cooperate with somebody who's a complete total stranger? That's not part of your in-group. That that not a, are not related. You don't even know, and they're not even part of our group. So this is called the problem of tipping. Uh, so you say you go to a a restaurant and you tip 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 the wait person. Uh, Why why would you do that? Well, of course, if this is your regular haunts, maybe you know they'll remember that you're a cheapskate. So you don't want to be considered a cheapskate. But why not? Well, because we care about reputation because of that whole gossip and in-group and who has a reputation for being a cooperator and a good guy and. Generous and a good supporting member of our group. Uh, it's one of the wonderful functions of religion. This is one of the things, reason religion evolved was as a means of signaling to others you're a reliable group member. If you're there performing the the rituals every Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whenever your day is, then that, that it shows you're a, you're a reliable member of an in group. So religion is a way of enforcing groupness. But that's a that's a that's a different book. Anyway, so. Um, but with the, with the tipping thing, let's say you're traveling to a, uh, in a strange city. Let's say here I am in New York, and I'll probably go out afterwards uh, for some more adult beverages to solve more problems in life. Anyway, with our friends, uh, the New York skeptics. And then I'll probably go to a restaurant that I've never been to, and I'll probably never go to that restaurant again. There's something like 10,000 restaurants in New York. Is it 100,000? Whatever. Anyway, chances of my going there. Again, are slim, and none chances I'll get the same person. So, I mean, why should I leave a tip? I mean, I could I could save the five percent if I wanted. I don't have to do that. <laughs> uh, but no, but no, I'll do it anyway. Uh, well, one reason is maybe I want to impress Jamie. I want Jamie to think I'm a generous guy, and look, look, I got so much money and power, and and look, I can afford this. So that's a that's what's called costly signaling theory. You can you can send a signal to your other other. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I see. (laughs) Now he's going to work me for a free meal. Okay. (laughs) Um, But what if you're all by yourself and there's nobody to impress? There's no signals to send to anybody. Okay. So this is the problem of tipping. And and here's where it gets a little bit naughty. In different theories, ethical egoism says, well, you don't do it. You do it to make somebody else feel good. Yeah, maybe. But maybe you're selfishly doing this because it makes you feel good to make somebody else feel good. And that's still a selfish thing because you're getting a little boost of something, dopamine from this, whatever. Um, and that's still a selfish thing. Okay, that may be true. Uh, and we, We're probably at the wall there to solve that problem. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm interested in from an evolutionary perspective is why should you feel good or bad about anything? What's the purpose of that? Uh, that is, these are emotions that are there for a reason. And emotions generate, I mean, they cost they cost energy for the brain to run. And therefore, they must be there for a reason. And so if we think of something simpler like hunger, well, hunger is an emotion and emotions are there to drive behavior to, for a particular reason. So if we think of a sort of a homeostatic model of human behavior, you're always out of balance a little bit here or there. And emotions are a way of pushing you to do something to bring the system back into balance, something like that. So hunger is a great emotion to drive you to consume calories, to keep the system in balance. Um, romantic attraction, or who you're attracted to, is an emotion that drives you to do you know, other kinds of behaviors, which in the long run propagate the species and, and so forth. But we, but we uh, and, and psychologists, the evolutionary psychologists, really have this down to a formula now. They know what people are attracted to. In members of the opposite sex or even the same sex. And not just in the Western world, but in fact in almost all cultures of the world that uh, women find in men attractive, you know, that sort of broad shouldered and narrow waist and a symmetrical face that is the left and right are relatively symmetrical, a clear complexion. These are all cues or proxies for genetic health in men. Attracted to women with, you know, waist-to-hip ratio about 0.67 in the hourglass figure and the symmetrical face, clear complexion, and so on. That nobody walks into a nightclub and says, "Wow, that's a point 0.68, 0.69, <laughs> close enough." You know, I, mean, I think I can, I think that's a good genetic fit for me. I'm looking to, you know, propagate my genes into the next generation. Uh, no, we don't. We don't have to do those calculations. Evolution's already done the calculating for us. And we just have evolved emotions that just tell us, wow, okay, that's the one for me. And I'm going, you know, it's driving behavior. So if we think of emotions in that sense, then, um, and, and then start to, to, to sort of pull out and think of all social relations as, as as related to emotions that get us to try to do different things, then we begin to understand a little bit more uh, why people do what they do. So um, in my... Uh, chapter on, sort of expanding this, go back to reading just a little bit. Uh, And a famous experiment done at Harvard uh, has now been done. Uh, Tens of thousands of people can can go online and do this. Um, So I'll just uh, read this opening paragraph. You're walking along a railroad line. When you come across a fork in the track and a switch, there are five workers on one track and one worker on the other track. Suddenly, suddenly you realize that a trolley car is hurtling along and is about to hit and kill the five workers unless you throw the switch and divert the car down the other branch, killing the one worker instead. So the moral calculation is you, you kill one to save five. Would you do it? Would you throw the switch? Almost everybody who logs on and takes this, you can do it. Uh, this is Mark Hauser's webpage at Harvard, so you can Google him. Uh, almost everybody says, yeah, they'd throw the switch. Uh, Kill one to save five. In a second scenario, um, uh, instead of coming upon a switch, you happen across a bridge where there is a large man standing next to you. The trolley car is once again speeding down the track and is about to hit and kill the five workers unless you push the large man onto the track, killing him but stopping the car. So picture the guy standing there next to you on the bridge. It's like Rush Limbaugh or something, you know. And (laughs) you not. You know, you just give him a little hip check, boom, off he goes into the car. Um, would you do it? Most people say they would not do it. Even though the moral calculations, precisely the same. Kill one to save five. Uh, there's something viscerally different about um, the indirect action of throwing the switch versus the physical action directly pushing another human being. And the reason is that switches and people are categorically different. And evolutionary theory explains why. Evolution designed us to value humans over non-humans, kin over non-kin, friends over strangers, in-group members over out-group members, and direct action over indirect action because these differences impacted survival and reproduction. So we are still very tribal and xenophobic against members of the out-group. And yet we're still cooperative, altruistic, nice and kind to fellow in-group members. Love thy neighbor most certainly means, in the Old Testament anyway, your fellow in-group members which nicely explains why on the one page it it, it tells you to do all these wonderful nice things for your your neighbors and then on the next page you're supposed to rape and pillage and destroy the bastards on the other side of the river because you know they're not us and and that Old Testament morality is very much classic evolutionary psychology in-group out-group tribalism. Uh, So these intuitively felt differences and moral intuitions reflect a rational calculation conducted over the evolutionary eons. In other words again the emotion, the sort of visceral feeling that it would be wrong to push somebody off a bridge to save five people. Um, that's a moral calculation done by evolution for some reason, but that's an emotional feeling we have. So what may seem like an irrational behavior today may actually have been, a rational, been rational deep in our Paleolithic past. Um, so another example of this, one of these sort of thought experiments, um, or actually not, not even thought, a real experiment, uh, called the ultimatum game. Uh, now, so sort we're of, sort of shifting into the realm of game theory, which is a favorite tool of cognitive psychologists and behavioral econo- economists, and now even neuroeconomists, where they cram you inside a MRI tube and you, you do these little games with a little switch. Anyway, one of the classic ones you you already know about: prisoner's dilemma, where you and the, your fellow prisoner are captured and you both make an agreement to keep your mouth shut and you'll both get a a, a small sentence, but you're you know you're made an offer by the By the prosecutor, that if you, you know, if you rat out the other guy, you get off free and he gets a longer sentence and he's made the same offer. You know, what do you do? Do you cooperate, keep your mouth shut with your your buddy, or do you defect? Of course, if he's like you and you're thinking about defecting, maybe he defects. So, this is one of these sort of complex dilemmas called the prisoner's dilemma. And uh, and another one that's like that, so we'll come back to that, but another one that's like that is called the ultimatum game. This is a one shot deal where, let's say, um, you two are star, poor starving students in my class at, at a college, which is how most of human behavior is studied. <laughs> 18 to 20-year-old <laughs> kids and white rats. <laughs> That's a, another area for skepticism. For, I'm going to write a column about this uh, one day. Anyway, um, so I'd experiment. i give uh, say give you, uh, Adrian, um, $100. And, uh, and you have to make an offer to your uh, collaborator here of a split of the $100. And if he accepts that your offer whatever it may be, 50-50, 60-40, 50, whatever. Uh, if he accepts it, you both get to keep the money. If he rejects it, neither of you get any money at all, and you just get one shot at it. All right, how much should, would you offer him? <laughs> now, uh, according to uh, what's called rational choice theory, uh, so as a slight sidebar, economists have long had this uh, notion of what they call homo economicus, uh, uh, economic man which has three central tenets, that, that humans are by nature uh, rational and free. We're largely free to make choices that we want. And that our choices that we make, we will be uh, self-maximizing or utility maximizing. Economists have this idea of utility, the value you put on something. Whatever choice you rationally and freely make will be one that maximizes your benefit, selfishly, okay? This is a, a complete myth that's been thoroughly debunked now uh all three points. But uh, according but according to that theory you should offer him I don't know like a 90/10 split, right? This poor guy has no money and he can walk out of here with 10 bucks, go down to Starbucks and get two venti lattes. <laughs> uh but in experiments run in the real world on this, uh th- those offers are almost always rejected. Now that's irrational. He should take the 10 bucks cuz he didn't have it before, but he rejects it. Why? Because it isn't fair, you just ask him why not? Because it isn't fair. Who says it's not fair? I mean, where is this written? Well, it's written in our genes. It's written in our brains. It's in our nature to to sense that that's not fair. It's it's not that he doesn't want the ten bucks. He doesn't want you to have the ninety. And it's not just the ninety. It's the disparity. And so, an economist would describe this as you're willing to pay ten dollars to punish her for being unfair and making that offer. You're, you're, you're actually sacrificing something here. You're, you're investing in punishment, So and we do this. This goes a long way to explaining the breakdown of business transactions, divorces, and things like this that uh, where people get so emotional about what they perceive to be unfairness. But again, why would we have that feeling in the first place? Where does that sense of fairness come from? And again, this is back to that emotions as proxies for something else, a calculation uh, in an environment in which resources are fairly limited, very limited, and in which we really did evolve in a zero-sum uh, game, in which one person's gain often was somebody else's loss. This idea of a non-zero-sum a game, that the world that we can live in today, at least in parts, uh, never really existed before now, So, um, at least in the economic realm. So his visceral, emotional rejection of that Uh, It's completely natural. Now this experiment has been done on peoples all over the world. You have to use different models because they use different monies. Or even in um, indigenous peoples that have no money at all, you have to find different ways to run the experiment of things that that they value and so on. And it's now even been done on primates. Uh, Bronze Duvall and Sarah Bronson have done these interesting experiments where uh, the two primates have to cooperate in a task where one gets paid off and the other doesn't. Uh, so, for example, in one of them with capuchin monkeys, have tiny little brains. So in no way are they calculating anything, right? Uh, and yet they still can run these experiments. Like one of them, they're both in, in, in cages here, uh, separated by a, a barrier that they can see. And they both have to pull this these, this rope up to pull this platform up. And on the platform is a bucket of, uh, of fruit. It's on some ice, and it's nicely sliced, and it's like bananas and apples and peaches. They really like this stuff and uh, but if one pulls and the other doesn't the the platform tilts and the bucket falls off and they don't get the Neither of them gets the food so they both have to cooperate but the bucket comes up on one side and only the one gets it and the question is will he share or not if they share all goes well and they'll pull it up they'll both work at it hard again and and they both do a lot of sharing. If they don't share, if the one doesn't share, that's pretty much the end of the experiment. The other guy refuses to participate. He gets mad and they throw things, um, and uh, and so the, the, the interpretation there, the evolutionary interpretation, is that that sense of fairness in a game exchange like that, either evolved independently in different lines, or We have that in a common primate ancestor going back over six million years when we branched off. So this idea of these base um, emotional reactions to fair and unfair exchanges. So let's get off the topic of money. Just think of all human relationships as a form of a game in which you're exchanging something. So grooming, you're grooming each other. Uh, Duvall has discovered that when when one chimp grooms another chimp, Uh, that other chimp is more likely to help him in a fight against some some other guy he doesn't like. Uh, So that's a form of exchange. Almost literally, I'll scratch your back (laughs) if you'll scratch mine. That's that's sort of making a reciprocal exchange there. And if we think of the economy in a much broader sense that way, then a lot of this evolutionary stuff makes sense. Um, Okay, so um, going down even deeper then in... um, uh, brain scans of subjects doing these. I mentioned this earlier. So here's how this works. If you want to, they want to, we want to know where in the brain this is actually happening, these kinds of cooperative feelings or rejection, feel, unfair feelings, and so on. So what you do is you just run those games cleverly through computer programs on a computer screen, and then you cram your subjects inside one of these tubes, and you wear these goggles, and on the goggles are little TV monitors, and the TV monitors are the computer screen out in the other room where they run the experiment. And you have a little keypad. And you punch little keys that tells the thing to move around. Or you take, you choose this versus that. You choose Coke versus Pepsi or wh- whatever it is you're scanning. And they do that sort of thing. So this is called neuroeconomics. There's uh, you know, about a dozen labs around the country that are doing this full time. So they crank out the research like crazy. There's a big conference this weekend in New York here on neuroeconomics. Anyway, so I went to UCLA and went to Russ uh, Pauldreck's lab to do this. And uh, this was a really bizarre experience. I, I, I've never in my life had any experience with claustrophobia. I have nothing like that. And I couldn't wait to go inside the fMRI and see my brain, what it looked like, and do one of these little experiments. Anyway, I, I, they crammed me in there. And, boy, I don't know if you have claustrophobia or not, but you have, like, a helmet on and these wedges and the earphones and, and this, that, and the other, and, you know, the tube is pretty small, and I'm pretty broad shoulders, so the thing is, like, crammed, I'm crammed right up against, so I can feel it, and you're all the way back in this tube, and uh, and Russell hands me this little button to push, and I said, what's this for? He goes, it's the panic button. I said, I don't need that. <laughs> you know, I'm a California manly man, you know. I'm from California. I don't need that. Anyway, so... Uh, he said, You better take it just in case, because I can't stay in there. I said, You can't stay in there. I mean, this is the experimenter. And he goes, Yeah, about one fifth of subjects can't stay in the tube. So anyway, it turns out I couldn't. I hit that button. I was out of there. So we <laughs> we brought in some other people so I could take some pictures and watch how it's done and write about it. And and <laughs> it was bizarre. And it was actually a good lesson for me because, you know, because we're so pro-rational and pro-science and you reason your way through your emotions. You know, that's what we're all about, right? And then until you experience something like this. And there's no reason. I mean, I was trying to talk myself out of it, you know, while well, I was hitting the panic button. And <laughs> I mean I had to leave the room and go down the hallway to get my heart rate down. I mean, it was really. So now it gave me a, a deeper grasp of how powerful those emotions can be. Anyway, that's a different different subjects. But uh, one of the things they've discovered is that when subjects are uh, doing these kinds of uh, dilemma games and ultimatum games and so on, when they're cooperating with the other subjects. So picture two MRI machines yoked by the internet. they can be across the country, Caltech, Emory, for example, is one experiment. So they're both in real time through the internet playing these little games in there scanning their brains. And when both subjects are cooperating and they're both making a lot of money, and they really do, they make money, uh, there's a version of the ultimatum game in which it's iterated. They play back and forth. So uh, I'll give you 10 bucks, and you can make an offer to him. And whatever he accepts is tripled in value. And then he can make an offer back to you. And if whatever he makes to you is tripled in value again. And back and forth you go. And you see if people start defecting or trying to keep more money. Or... Anyway, it's very interesting. But when they're both making a lot of money and cooperating and feeling good about it, the areas of the brain of the hypothalamus light up that are related to the so-called pleasure center. That center, remember the that guy in the 60s put that electrode in that rat and he pressed the bar until he collapsed because it was it felt so good, obviously. And now we know that that's you know it's releasing a lot of dopamine and dopamine's related to addiction and addictive uh, drugs and so on. It's a feel-good kind of uh, uh, brain chemistry, and that's the areas. It's areas of the brain that are heavy and dopamine. Receptor sites are lighting up when uh, subjects are playing these, um, uh, these dilemma games and they're, they're doing a lot of cooperating. Now, my friend Paul Zach at Claremont has gone one even better. Um, so I'll pick up reading it there again. Paul's interested in what the actual neurochemistry at another level is. So there's an old English proverb that says, it is an equal failing to trust everyone and to trust no one. So begins Paul Zak, a professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University, who's taking his profession down to the molecular level in his search for the neurochemistry of trust. Uh, uh, the, the idea that um, in order to trade, you have to be able to trust somebody. So the trust is an emotion. So what, what's the basis of that emotion? What would it be there? Um, which he believes is grounded in oxytocin oxytocin is the hormone that we all know is the sort of the bonding hormone between mother and, uh, and, and infant and we now know that oxytocin is, is a kind of a bonding attachment hormone for any social relations it's especially strong for mothers and infants but any, any couples that have this even getting a massage gives you a little mm-hmm. oxytocin boost uh, and so that's where Paul was going with this he writes uh, we know that trust is a very strong predictor of national prosperity but I want to know what makes two people trust one another Zach is the oxytocin man. This says so right on his license plate. Uh, this is California, you see. We, we do these kinds of things. Tall and handsome with square shoulders and the physique of somebody who works out regularly, Zach's firm grip and warm smile exude, well, trust. Trained in traditional economics in the mid-1990s, his research led him to connect trust to economic growth. In 1996, study on trust in 42 countries, for example, asked people in their native language, Generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you cannot be too careful in dealing with people? The results were as diverse as they were striking. At the low end of the trust scale, only 3% of those surveyed in Brazil uh, and 5% in Peru believe that their fellow citizens are trustworthy, compared to 65% of Norwegians and 60% of Swedes who trust one another. Following in, following in the middle of the scale where the United States at 36% and the United Kingdom at 44%. Um, and the rankings remain essentially unchanged even when they are controlled for income. Trust is high in the countries of Scandinavia and East Asia, but low in the countries of South America, Africa, and especially the former communist bloc. Um, it turns out that trust is very high. Apparently there's a correlation between trust and uh, countries that have high, um, a lot of social services, a uh, safety net that protects uh, the poor and so on. My libertarian friends are distraught to hear this, but the data the data are there. That's the way it is. It's one explanation, by the way. Um, there's two explanations for why Americans are so much more religious than Europeans. Um, one is sort of a conservative e- explanation. One, one's sort of a liberal, predictably so. Uh, and uh, so the, the conservative explanation is, is sort of a um, if you treat religions as corporations and because we have separation of church and state and the religions get no help at least they're not supposed to, from the government, Uh, they have to compete like corporations for a limited customer base and resources. So they've developed effective marketing techniques and tools, mass marketing, telemarketing, Uh, megachurches are incredible experiences. I mean, it's a one-stop shopping. They offer everything, you know, babysitting and you name it, they got it for you. And so they're very relevant and up-to-date for what their customers' needs are uh, because they have to be. Otherwise, they don't get uh, money. Whereas in Europe, the churches are funded by uh, taxes, and so everybody gets you know a fixed sum of money, and uh, and so they're they're largely churches are largely dead. Okay, that's that's the, the explanation for that. The liberal explanation is no, uh, religion serves the role of helping people in need, and since America has a, a porous safety net to help those most in need, they turn to religion, and so religion then is a sort of a substitute for government subsidies. And Europe provides that, and that—that's why European countries in this data uh, then are, are more trusting because there's a safety net and a social system that people perceive as fair. Anyway, that's a—that's kind a, of an interesting debate that hasn't really been resolved. But um, uh, but the data are kind of split there. Anyway, what Zach wanted to do then was to see uh, with this oxytocin business, um, when subjects are doing these ultimatum games and prisoner's dilemma, do they actually have a change in oxytocin? And so. Um, what he does is he runs these subjects in a room, and they're in there, and he draws their blood as they're playing the game. And, uh, I mean, it, they have to really pay these subjects a pretty good, you know, it's, this is not a pleasant thing to do, and you have to train graduate students for this and so on. So, um, uh, And sure enough, when, when there's a lot of cooperation, when, you know, you're offering 50-50 or when you're both making a lot of money in the iterated ultimatum game, oxytocin goes off the scale. I mean, there's a nice big spike in it. and the, the subjects report feeling good about the game, feeling good about the stranger they're playing the game with, and so on. But, of course, which is the cause and which is the effect? And to find out, Zach developed another interesting um, methodology here where he then decided to infuse oxytocin into subjects before they play the game and then see those that got it and those that didn't and how their, their trust and cooperation levels. And he did this through a nose spray. So you put a little oxytocin in a nose break, take a hit off that, and it goes right through the blood-brain barrier, boom, right in there. And those guys were cooperating and offering a lot more money. There's different games where you, you make donations to charities, things like that. Uh, and, uh, and boy, it goes they're way more effective this way. And since we know that physical touch, being touched by somebody or touching somebody, also releases oxytocin and makes you feel more connected and close to somebody uh, uh, so he actually hired a trained professional massage therapist to give these gra- these students massages and then they go play this game. Those students they really like this game anyway um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so um so there then we're getting that that, that sort of basis uh, of of trust and so one of the things that trade does. A free trade does between strangers. Is it, it creates opportunities for game exchanges in which, if there's trust, if the if the cooperation, in the trading is going well, trust develops between between the strangers. That that's the point he's getting at. What he's discovered, by the way, uh, this is fairly new and we haven't really sure about this. But about two percent of his subjects show no effect at all. I mean, you can you can inject them with a, a gallon of oxytocin and they don't they don't really care. And uh, he calls them the bastards. These are the the <laughs> bastards in his uh, research. It also happens to be the percentage of sociopaths in society. And uh, so we're actually playing with the idea that perhaps uh, there's just a certain percentage of people that are unaffected by normal human relationships and the hormones and chemicals that go with it. And uh, and and it's also possible in an evolutionary model that that maybe. Uh, Those bastards keep the rest of us on our moral toes. That is, you have to be especially vigilant and careful, uh, not for just the part-time defectors and cheaters, uh, because you can sort of work around them, allow a little freeloading in the system to get by. But, But because we have the bastards, we have to be especially vigilant about it, and that has honed our evolutionary moral sense of fairness even more sharply. That's a little speculative, but I think there might be something to that. Okay, I'm going to wrap up here just to finish up uh, reading a few more passages and then we'll take questions um, on that. Uh, so the psychology behind diffusing intergroup aggression involves, that—that that is aggression b- between strangers, involves turning potentially dangerous total strangers into prospectively helpful honorary friends. This process is enabled through the creation of social institutions that encourage and enable and enforce positive social interactions that lead to trust. Uh, One of the most powerful forms uh, of interaction is trade, the effects of which I want to elevate into a principle based on an observation by the 19th century French economist Frédéric Bastiat, where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will. Bastiat's principle not only helps us understand how hunter-gatherers made the transition to consumer traders, it also illuminates one of the primary causes of conflict, its corollary elucidates one of the principal steps toward conflict reduction. If Bastiat's principle holds that where goods do not cross frontiers armies will, then its corollary dictates that where goods do cross frontiers armies will not. Now this is a principle, not a law since there are lots of exceptions historically and today. Trade will not prevent war, but it attenuates its likelihood. Note, by the way, the first thing countries do when they don't like each other is impose economic uh, trade sanctions, so you can't swap Uh, Products anymore. Thinking in terms of probabilities instead of absolutes, trade between groups increases the probabilities that peaceful and stable relations will continue and decreases the probability that instabilities and conflicts will erupt. So let's return uh, to where we began the book with the Yanomamo, hunter-gatherers and how they evolved into Manhattan consumer traders. (laughs) When missionaries first began working with the Yanomamo, They discovered that if they provided the native peoples with tools for the procurement and production of food and other resources, the amount of Yanomamo inner village fighting was greatly reduced. The great Yanomamo ethnographer Napoleon Chagnon, who originally gave the Yanomamo their Fierce People moniker, his monogram was called Yanomamo, the Fierce People, Versus he says, well, they're not always fierce. I mean, when they're eating, they're not fierce. When they're making love, they're not fierce. I mean, they're just, it's just a, a way of describing somebody. When he, he discovered that the Yanomamo are also sophisticated traders. Why? Because trade creates political alliances. Following the political dictum, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Yanomamo intervillage trade and reciprocal food exchanges serve as a powerful social glue in the creation of political alliances. Village A cannot go to Village B and announce that they are worried about being conquered by the more powerful Village C, since that would reveal their own weakness. Instead, Village A forms an alliance with Village B through trade and reciprocal feasting, and as a result, they not only gain military protection, but also encourage inter-village peace. As a byproduct of this politically motivated economic exchange, even though each Yanomamo band could produce all the SKUs, the products, that those 300 things they need uh, for their own survival, they often set up a division of labor and a system of trade. The unintended consequences an increase in both wealth and products. Now, the Yanomamo trade not because they're innate altruists or nascent capitalists, but because they want to form political alliances quote from Napoleon without these frequent contacts with neighbors alliances would be much slower in formation and would even be more unstable once formed a prerequisite to stable alliance is repetitive uh, visiting and feasting and the trading mechanism serves to bring about those visits in other words where goods cross Yanomomo frontiers Yanomomo armies do not continuing that um, uh, sort of extrapolation from that is what I call the Starbucks corollary to the Bastiat principle where Starbucks cross frontiers armies will not if, if you're sick and tired of Starbucks and hate it I'm sorry it's just it's when I visited the Forbidden City in China in 2001 they opened a Starbucks in the Forbidden City I couldn't believe it but I thought okay but there's something else going on that anyway, got me thinking about this it is the free trade of products between peoples and open access to services across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probabilities that armies will cross them. To the Starbucks corollary, I add the Google theory of peace, where information and knowledge cross frontiers, armies will not. That is, the free trade of information between peoples and open access to knowledge across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probability that armies will cross them. A stirring example can be seen in Europe. Since the Treaty of Rome and the formation of the European Union, which integrated disparate and historically divided European nations under one economic umbrella, where once invasions and wars were commonplace throughout a thousand years of European history, they are now unthinkable. Try it. Imagine Germany invading France and waging war upon her. Or picture France motoring its armies through the Channel and marching them into London to declare the country French. What once made for dramatic literature now sounds like pulp fiction. The wikification of the economy, wikonomics as it's become known, adds to the Google theory of peace, the entire world economy as practiced by and participated in by billions of people. Wikipedia is the right analog for this emerging economic phenomenon. It's the collaborative created encyclopedia that runs on wiki, Hawaiian for quick software that allows real-time and constant editing of documents by anyone, anywhere, anytime. It's an open-sourced, peer-produced, mass-collaborated, bottom-up, self-organized, emergent property of millions of people choosing to build the modern equivalent of the Alexandrian library. whose purpose was to make the sum of the world's knowledge available to everyone in one location. Granted, the ancient Alexandrian Greeks had far less knowledge to store than we do today by many orders of magnitude, But we have the World Wide Web. So in conclusion, in the long run, no dictator, demagogue, priest, president, or any other pretender to power will be able to control the Googlefication, Wikification, eBayification map, Questification, YouTubefication, my of information, knowledge, geography, personal relationships, markets, and the economy. Chinese bureaucrats can attempt to put all the firewalls and controls they want on a billion potential Chinese web surfers, but they will never be able to prevent knowledge, products, and people from finding their way to those who seek them. Freedom finds a way.
0: To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.